This is special programming from North State Public Radio. I'm Sarah Bohannon. Today marks one year since the campfire started. On After Paradise, we're focusing on where we are now, 365 days after the fire. We'll hear from those working in mental health about how the anniversary is triggering stress and anxiety for many in the community and about practical ways to manage. We'll hear about recovery from survivors living in communities all over the burn scar. And we'll visit with a few people providing a message of hope. It's been a long road, and it may not feel like it now, but we can turn the challenges of this disaster into post-traumatic growth. We're still here, so please reach out about whatever post-campfire information you need on our website, mynspr.org. There you'll also find a full list of resources for ways to help you cope. This is After Paradise. If you drive through the burn scar of the campfire today, the devastation is still clear. Trees are charred, roads have fewer cars, lot after lot contains nothing. At this point, most of the mangled mess the fire left behind has been removed, and there are signs of life again. Paradise and the many rural communities that surround it, Megalia, Concow, Yankee Hill, Butte Creek Canyon, are all moving forward. But as we commemorate the anniversary, it's hard not to remember that day and all that was lost. These feelings have left many on edge, which is why we're dedicating the first part of this program entirely to mental health. I spoke with Holly Drobny and Scott Kennelly at Butte County Behavioral Health to find out more about what emotions people may be going through and what you can do to cope. We're trying to deal with um, the impact of anniversary trauma. And unfortunately, I hate to say we have multiple fires going on in California that are not helping. So we have a lot of people being triggered by just turning the TV on, seeing a lot of images that look very much like the Paradise Fire. PG&E shutoffs have been very triggering for some people because the power goes out or they wake up and there's no power and you have no way of knowing what's going on. Um, in addition to the smell of smoke, when there's controlled burns or you look up at the sky and you see an um, orange skyline, what does that mean? Where's the fire? And so you see a lot of people take to social media and go, oh my gosh, I see smoke. What does that mean? People responding to traumas can sometimes withdraw, become isolated, agitated. If you truly have a post-traumatic stress disorder, things such as uh, flashbacks and, and dissociation can occur. But even if you don't have post-traumatic stress disorder and you've just been through a trauma or you're someone who's been living in Butte County and vicariously exposed to trauma because so many people are talking about it or you're seeing it on the, the news. Limiting your access to the media is one of the things I would recommend. Limiting screen time for your kids. Talking to someone, making sure you have a friend or a, a support is important. And then if you feel like you need some help or you know someone who might need some help, referring them to someone who is a trauma-informed therapist who's uh, trained in how to deal with trauma, I would recommend that too. I think it is important to know that whatever reaction you have to the fire, that it's a normal reaction and to have grace with yourself and let yourself feel the feelings that you're feeling. Another thing I think is important to remember that although our community has been very traumatized, it is still really uplifting to think about how resilient our community is. And so I think just promoting the resilience and healing is an important thing to remember on the anniversary of the fire. Not a lot has been focused on kids. And I want to ask parents and caregivers to really pay attention to their kids. Um, check in with them around the campfire, see how they're doing, ask them what they're thinking. Um, some kids are, can regress in their behaviors at this point. They can become more behavioral. They can act out more. You see more thumb sucking. That's okay. That happens sometimes when there's uh, traumatic events. Hug your kid more. You can pat on the back. Just check in. Make sure that you're asking how things are doing. Don't be judgy. Don't say, oh, it's, everything's okay. There's no way a fire is going to happen again. Validate their concerns if they have those concerns and offer them some options or support. Usually teenagers, they don't necessarily turn to parents for support. So it's okay if your teenage son or daughter wants to go and hang out with their friends and talk to their friends instead of you. As long as they're talking to someone who's healthy and supportive and they're not doing drugs and alcohol and things that are not necessarily healthy, that's okay. That's why they have a support network. That, that is a helpful option for them. That was Butte County Behavioral Health's Interim Director, Scott Kennelly and Public Information Officer, Holly Drobny. You can find a full list of mental health resources, including ways to connect with a counselor by phone or in person, on our website, mynspr.org. 
After a disaster like last year's campfire, there's no doubt that many people are struggling with distress, depression, and anxiety. Again, these feelings are normal and help is available. And maybe no one can relate that message like a therapist who is also a survivor. Joe Wills is a marriage and family therapist in Chico. He lost his home in Butte Creek Canyon to last November's campfire. Now he's been facilitating a support group for faculty and staff at Chico State. I asked him how he and others have been moving forward this past year. You would never wish anything like this, of course, for anyone in any role. And it's been a challenge for many, many people in various jobs who suffered in one way or another from the fire to just continue on. And that's just uh, the nature of things in our community. No one was unaffected. Some people are just affected because their neighborhood's different. But everyone's been affected, and some people are just grievously affected. And I think overall there's been a pretty good effort to make services available to them or let people know that there's uh, people out there or agencies or services they can avail themselves of. Have you noticed or has anyone been expressing this in the groups or maybe people you work with just with the anniversary coming up that they are feeling more anxiety or, or anything like that? Is that something you've noticed? Absolutely. It's been coming up um, either indiv- with individuals or here on campus for a couple of months or so. And uh, people have different solutions Getting over something traumatic or grieving over something, there's, there's no one playbook. So for different people, certain things work, and I think it has to do with their circumstances, in some cases their personality, their family situation. There's no one way, but for some people, they need a, a kind of a geographic solution. They want to get out of town and go somewhere completely different and just get away. And it really works for them. For other people, they, they want to just have a normal day. And it might not really be a normal day as such, but, but they kind of want to do what they usually do. They want to go to work or they want to go to school or they want to do what they do at home. And, and that works for them. So it's a combination of what fits. But most people I know, it is, it's a day circled on the calendar for sure. For anyone who's really struggling right now and maybe who doesn't know where to go and get help, do you have any advice for them at all? Well, I would certainly start with a search on Google and just type Therapy Chico, and uh, you will get things there that you can follow up on. If you're fortunate enough to have insurance, contact your insurance company and say, what what kind of mental health options do I have? Uh, If you have an employer, ask your employer if uh, there's a, a benefit. Some employees don't know that they have an employee benefit uh, for counseling that's free to them. Make sure that you know what you may have that's available to you, perhaps even financially covered, and, and check that out first. And if that's not the case, if you contact therapists, often while well, therapists have been busier in the last year, and I'm, I'm, I'm no different, but if you reach out and, and say, you know, I could really use some help, and do you offer uh, a sliding scale because I have some financial hardship or other things? I know many people in town who are ready to help you. Now, there are other things that can also help someone with anxiety, as you mentioned, or, or other things. And, and uh, therapy is uh, not the only answer, nor is it for everyone. Being with family, getting outside in the fresh air, exercise, having coffee with a close friend. Lots of these are, of course, common sense, but uh, do those things. Kind of check in. What is it that kind of supports me, makes me feel good? And make time for those things. That was Joe Wills, a licensed marriage and family therapist and campfire survivor. For residents, the campfire may have been the first real traumatic experience they've ever had in their lives. But for first responders, the disaster was a heavy addition to regular trauma exposure they get daily. Seeing this cumulative effect take a toll on emergency personnel is what prompted Butte County Sheriff Corey Honey to ask for help. The North Valley Community Foundation and Butte Strong Fund recently issued a $1 million grant to provide mental health and wellness services to Butte County's first responders. I spoke with the sheriff about what resources the funding will provide. We have developed 
a wellness app. It has a whole host of information uh, relative to both mental as well as physical well-being. Uh, there are assessments on there that they can take to determine, you know, what might be going on with them and what the what the problems might be. Uh, and then it recommends and provides access to resources to address those particular issues. Um, the benefit is it's completely confidential and it's available to them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so it makes it easier for them to reach out to uh, mental health professionals who might be able to provide information. So along with that, uh, we are developing a relationship with three uh, licensed therapists who specialize in providing treatment to first responders. They're able to be contacted through the app so that we're trying to reduce the number of barriers uh, that an individual has to reaching out and getting help. They can also uh, access our chaplains, peer support. We also have funding to actually pay the mental health providers to come into our organizations and provide training and group counseling. Uh, we will be working to help staff members who uh, may be in need of individual counseling to access that counseling. We don't want someone to uh, not get the assistance they need because they're not able to financially pay for it. How do you change a culture, though, and, and make it so that it's, it's okay to talk about how you're feeling? So that's obviously the hardest thing, right? As the sheriff, uh, as a leader in the law enforcement community, I had to step out and acknowledge it myself uh, and find ways to uh, seek help. I certainly uh, have been impacted by the, the campfire myself and, and you know, my family. You know, my wife is a, is a dispatcher and my daughter's in law enforcement as well. Uh, and just by way of example, it's not uncommon for me to wake up at three o'clock every morning and just kind of lay awake for uh, several hours and thinking about all of the things that I need to do to try to help move the community and move the organization forward. Um, and that difficulty sleeping wasn't nearly as prevalent prior to the campfire. So there's got to be some correlation. As we approach the anniversary date, I, I, I noticed that my anxiety level is increasing. And if that's happening to me, that's got to be happening to other people as well. And so acknowledging that and admitting that uh, openly to the public uh, through, this, <laughs> through this radio segment and then to my, to my staff, because I've, I've talked about it, I think is how you start changing that culture. What are some things that have helped you cope with that day-to-day -day trauma with the campfire? What are some things that, that you've been able to do for yourself personally? So my understanding of physical well-being, physical fitness, and its impact on emotional well-being and your ability to deal with stress, it actually goes back to the Orville Dam spillway incident, right? As a result of that, really began to change my habits in terms of maintaining physical well-being, physical fitness, uh, trying to eat more healthfully, and uh, utilizing that as my primary way of helping manage stress. I think the next strategy is, is where we're at today, and this is part of it, just admitting that, um, you know, that had an impact, and um, it's something that I'm working on dealing with, acknowledging that and encouraging others to take a step forward and then doing it myself, kind of leading by example, if you will, uh, has also helped in terms of managing that impact and managing the ongoing day-to-day -day stress that the campfire continues to visit upon all of us. That was Butte County Sheriff Corey Honey speaking about the new BCSO Health and Wellness app. It's available now for Sheriff's Office personnel and their families, and soon for other agencies in the county. You're listening to After Paradise, a special production from North State Public Radio. When we get back, we're heading to Concow to hear how one couple is doing all they can to survive. Stay tuned. This is After Paradise, a special program on the aftermath of the campfire from North State Public Radio. I'm Sarah Bohannon. More than 50,000 people were displaced the day the campfire started, and the first to have the flames overtake their community were the residents of Concow. 
Located in the mountains, just a few miles from the town of Polga, where the fire erupted, some residents there only had minutes to flee. I recently visited a couple camping on a friend's property. Like many, they're living in a used trailer, and they're worried that the only people thinking about them are the ones who are back living on the mountain. As you walk up to Patty and James Stevens' fifth wheel, you can see they're working to make it feel like a home. It now has a ramp for Patty and the walker she uses that leads up to the door. There are a couple of photos sitting on a shelf inside. A potholder hangs on the wall that says, live the life you love. It's a saying Patty says they believe in. But right now, you could probably take off those last four words. Live is good enough. She had a, a subdural hematoma. And so she has different concerns about things now. I mean, you know, we had a nice, warm, safe place, and now we're living in a trailer and moving again. And it's good to be alive every day. That's our struggle. It was about a month ago when Patty was sent to the hospital because blood started collecting outside of her brain. Today, she's sitting in a trailer wrapped in a green, red, and white plaid blanket. The beanie she's wearing covers a long braid on one side of her head and the other half, which is shaved and contains a scar where she just had surgery. Before I got to her place, she sent me a text that read, bring a coat. I don't have any heat. While I sit next to her, I ask her what she wants people to know most about her story. That Kung Kao exists. Is that it, Dad? Well, I don't know. We're just still struggling and making it. It's going to be a long way, so that's all. If I didn't know about the trip to the hospital, Patty, who is 68, and James, often called Jimmy, who is almost 67, in some ways would look like they're doing better than when I saw them three months ago. They've upgraded their trailer, and they're about to move on to a property with their grandkids. But once we start talking, I can see their recovery is like so many others in the area. It's one step forward, two steps, sometimes three steps back. Their trailer is bigger, but the heater is broken. It has a shower, but the septic holding tank is cracked and leaking. They have a generator, but paying for gas to fuel it is eating up their money. We were talking $50 a week for extra gas, and then you got... 40 bucks, and you know, for propane. We're on a fixed income, man. Like, all that extra expense is just not easy for all of us. Social security is their main source of income. That means more gas for the generator means less gas for the truck. But no running water and a small refrigerator also means they need to make more trips to the store. They say they do what they can to conserve. Every trip is planned and coordinated. They change to the same doctor and make their appointments for the same time. Patty had a stroke almost three years ago. Jimmy has type 2 diabetes, an irregular heartbeat, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Even so, they say, There's not much else we can do. We try to have enough money for gas. We kind of figure it out through the month. Otherwise, you cancel the appointment. They're hoping, unlike the trailer upgrade, the upgrade to their grandkids' property is a real step forward. They'll be near their great-grandkids, they'll have water and sewer, and they'll be close to help if they need it. In case something happens to me like I fall, my granddaughter can help Jimmy get me up. It's kind of tough sometimes, so I fall once in a while. When the fire hit, they were renters on their daughter's property, so Jimmy says they did not have insurance. But they did receive money from FEMA that allowed them to stay in a motel for the first three months after the fire. That was quite a blessing because... I needed some electricity to use my breathing machine and all that. And although Orville was in the heavy smoke, being in the room was quite beneficial because at least I could breathe in there. I ask what agencies are helping them now. There aren't any. If there's a place they can sign up for help, they don't know where it is and they haven't done it. And no one is knocking on their trailer door. Patty says there is a place near the local hardware store where they can get bottled water and odds and ends. They've also gotten some help from the Salvation Army and Passages, and have signed up for giveaways from organizations like the Suu Kyi Foundation. Aside from help from a few random people who have heard about them and from their burned-out neighbors, when it comes to assistance with essentials like money and food, they're on their own. It's a story I've heard all too often in this community, and the reason I was invited up to tell Patty and Jimmy's. It's hard. Just don't forget Kong Cow and Yankee Hill. Paradise is sad, it's real sad, and I feel real bad, but we, um, we, we're here.
A few miles south of Patty and Jimmy, another family is working toward their own recovery. The day the fire broke out, they gathered up the animals they could on their farm in Yankee Hill. Like last time, they thought they'd be back in a few days. But as NSPR's Mark Albert reports, the fire wasn't the same as those before. The only thing left standing, and the only thing well insured at the Chudy family's place, was the main house. Greenhouses, a solar system, batteries, irrigation, a school bus converted to a living space, another small home, sheds, accessory buildings, fencing, all lost. With special dispensation from the county agricultural commissioner, days later, Cheetah Chudy was allowed back through roadblocks to care for any surviving animals. The livestock kind of forced me to act. Um, we couldn't just lie in bed and mope when animals need to be tended. Cheetah is among five family members living on the property, along with his mother and father, brother, and wife, Sammy. He says the loss was immense and personal. I've milled lumber myself from the trees on the property. I've wired everything myself. You know, it's just, it's every single step I can see in my mind still. And it, yeah, it's just gone and there's no way to put it back the way it was. And that's the tough thing is, you know, we're farmers and we're frugal and, uh, we were doing fine with our business before the fire, but it's near impossible to put it back the way it was. And in many ways, it's not sensible to put it back the way it was. Despite interlocking support from a tightly knit family, strong bonds with neighbors, and a large extended network of friends, there's almost palpable guilt that they're somehow weathering the disruption, complexity, and expense. We have people here in Yankee Hill that, you know, don't have the facilities to get their debris removed. They. Maybe they're not eligible for Cal OES and don't have the money for a backhoe or a wrecker to take away the burned vehicle that's sitting on their property. Or maybe, he ponders, that they don't have the resources or emotional support it takes to recover. I ran into my neighbor today when I was fueling up my gas can and we're both chuckling, you know, because um, we it turns out we live on the same road. We're two of the houses on our road that burned. And he told me his wife doesn't get out of bed, just doesn't. And that's just where people are at right now. It, it's, it's hard. Even with all their education and resources, clearing the hurdles to secure aid to rebuild their homes, farm, and business is daunting. Sammy says it's like you can't really plan for your future. You have to wait to, to be told if you're poor enough, if, you, uh, have, if you're of enough means, if you uh, actually need it, you have to be vetted, all of these things. And thankfully, we work for ourselves, and I can hotspot on my phone so I can print things out at a moment's notice and scan it and send it back so that, you know, by the end of the week, I can have a little bit more money to get us down the road. And a lot of people just don't have the capacity to do that. When not applying for grants and aid, the whole family has been rebuilding for the last 12 months. Remnants of Cheetah and Sammy's home became building blocks for a new pump house and a powerhouse. A new greenhouse and mycelium now crank out 20 pounds of oyster mushrooms a week. Irrigation's back to water herbs. The pigs, ducks, and sheep have new makeshift pens made from pallets. After a year in a trailer, Sammy and Cheetah are upgrading to a cloth yurt for the winter. Despite a stoic exterior, emotionally much is riding on Cheetah's shoulders. It, it's better than before. I mean, uh, the thing I've noticed is that when I get in my truck, uh, I start to cry because it's where I spent so much of my time during the fire. And I hate that because I love my truck. <laughs> but yeah, I'm still not okay. Um, and it's, you know, we didn't have it that bad. And we're back on our feet and there's people that are suffering so much more than us. But it's like every time I drive through Butte Valley, it's just like driving back into the fire again. And yeah, it's, it, you know, people will reassure you and they say it's just stuff and you'll build it better the second time. But I don't want to, I, I want my old stuff. <laughs> I want my vintage tools. I want the cheap shears I had before. They worked. And so, yeah, still not okay, I guess. I think that we're really lucky because through all of this, we still have each other. And we know a lot of people whose relationships have ended because it's too stressful on their, just on their life, on their families. For NSPR News, I'm Mark Albert in Yankee Hill.
Yurts, RVs, mother-in-law units, couches, spare rooms, tents, cars. A year after the campfire, many of those who were displaced are still not in permanent housing and scrambling to find what they can. And SPR's Mark Albert went to the Matador Motel in Chico to check on Paradise resident Lori Peter Summers. She's been living with her family in a single room there for most of this year. Do you feel forgotten here? Yeah, I feel lost. I don't know where to go, what to do. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know who I am anymore. I, the only thing is, is I remember what I left behind and it's not there anymore. And we still haven't found any place to go. You know, we've been here for a year. I don't know, the kids feel it, the pets feel it. And we just, we're lost. <laughs> That's the only definition I can give. Last time we spoke, you, I think, had just been swindled out of yes. $1,500 on a deposit. Yes, that was it. And you don't know who to trust. And we're trying to find a home with pet-friendly, whatever. And I want a home with a kitchen and a bathroom and a be- my own bedroom. <laughs> I share a bed with two granddaughters, which are all over the place at night. <laughs> but it, you know what? We are survivors. <laughs> Has it been difficult watching other evacuees or other survivors? Yes. Um, the yes. Motel I, the I, last I'm wishing that I was the one to leave. But then again, I have I've found a lot of friends. I've learned a lot. I just want my own kitchen, my own house. house. Our, and it's getting tight with five people in there. With one and, bed. Yeah, with one. Yeah, sharing a bed with you. Oh. So it's a, it's a one, there's one bed in there? So there's one five bed. So y'all five share the same no, bed? No, us, us three kids. Uh, they've got a blow-up bed. My daughter and her boyfriend have a blow-up bed. I don't, I don't think I've slept a whole night the whole time I've been here because of them. No. <laughs> and it gets tight, you know. And it's hard with five dogs on the it's hard with five dogs on the bed and two puppies fall off the bed and clumsy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but they keep us warm, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, they keep us warm. They are mental support. I think more than humans, kind of, you know, but they give you a lot of unconditional love. For someone who's been through so much, I mean, I lost my mom, which is horrible, and it took me many, many months to recover, and it's been 13 years, and I'm still, you know, I think about her almost every day, but to lose your husband and then to lose your home, I mean, you're a real survivor and really strong, but I'm sure you... I don't know why. I don't know why, but God's keeping me here for some strange reason, and I'm going to beat that. I'm going to be paradise strong. I mean, if I can't live there, I'm going to be there for them. There's been an outpouring of aid, people donating money, people donating clothes, toys, um, you know, food, you name it, and gift cards. And, you know, there was psychologists here from the, you know, working to let anybody talk to them. Have you been able to, have you sought out any help Um, either, you know, for counseling? Counseling, I'm I'm on my way doing that. I'm supposed to turn in some paperwork, but I feel like every day is like, it's it's here in the morning and, it, it goes by so fast, I can't catch up with everything. And United Way is working with us. And they said that they're going to help us. And we're working with a certain worker, and they're going to help us. And then I'm working with an attorney for the fire. I don't know, I'm doing what I can on a day-to-day basis. And we're trying to pay our rent. I mean. FEMA did help one time, and but I it's probably my fault. I have to get the paperwork in, and 
Are you, are you overwhelmed by all the I'm bureaucracy? I'm and overwhelmed. I'm getting kind of old and I'm forgetting things and I've got too many people in the room. If you had your wishes, where would you be six months from now or, or on January 1st? Okay, I would want to be in a home, but I don't know where. I don't care. I just want a home. I want a bathroom, kitchen, and just a home. Not a house, a home. I just want a home. But you know what? We will survive. That was Lori Peters Summers, a Paradise resident, still living in a motel a year after the campfire. While a majority of those who are planning to return are still displaced, many are living and commuting to the area from all over the North State. But some have returned to the Ridge. That's the case for Richard Gingery Jr. He's a resident of Megalia, the Upper Ridge community known for being just a little above paradise. His home and business were left standing after the fire. So he's back in his role as a board member on the Paradise Unified School District and working as the co-owner of Whispering Pines Pet Clinic. I spoke with him about what it's like to be living in his community today. The struggles are the limited amount of population that is there and their ability to supply you with the amount of customers or the, the, the way to keep you open. And then another struggle that still exists is finding qualified help. So in my line of work, you know, I do have a staff that we've had before the fire, and we've been able to retain them. But post-fire, the amount of times we've been closed due to PG&E power outages, it does change the game and doesn't allow you to keep your employees as, as sound as you'd like. Many of them are paid by hour, and if you can't open up, you know, you can't pay them, and you try to work with that. And then I know some of the real true struggles in paradise is, you know, you just don't have the population there. Some of the crazy things that I've known by talking to other business owners and people that are in management in the area, in particular with like food stores, you lose anywhere between sixty dollars to $100,000 worth of inventory. You don't really have a way of continuing to match that or pay for that. And then when you don't have the same population walking through that door to buy those goods, it really makes it tough for those corporations and businesses to stay open. In regards to the school board, uh, we've had what I feel are great successes in getting back open, bringing our children into the campuses. The struggles are still real in that, you know, the vast majority of the population that lives in Megalia is uh, able to, you know, be right there and go to school. But the other big part of our population of students are still in refugee situations. And unfortunately for many of them, they're not in a financial situation either that allows them to effectively travel, effectively, you know, educate their children in their own homes, you know, outside of school. So as we continue to bus children, you know, from the surrounding areas, it will become increasingly difficult in the future when uh, you don't have the funding you know, to, to do the, those things. On a personal note, I think one of the craziest things for me, you know, living in this is recognizing my own stressors, recognizing my own post-traumatic stress disorder, finding and identifying my triggers and knowing, you know, how to manage those. And it, <laughs> it's not that easy. But as I'm getting better about recognizing my own, you start to realize others and you see theirs. And just knowing that I'm probably living in a community that everybody has it. And some cope with it and some don't. And uh, in my line of work, it's a struggle because some of the most minor things that would be going on with their beloved pet could be enough to throw them into anger, saying things they probably would have never said. But you know just that little tipping point was enough to do it you know, enough to cause them to treat you unkindly, you know, or do things to you that, you know, you, you, you don't want to engage them anymore, you know, as that comes through your business. But, you know, I'm in a community filled of it. It starts to make sense to me why people would 
feel more comfortable in leaving and not fighting and not sticking around, you know, for the battle of it. Because when you are surrounded by it and you can't recognize it well, it becomes a, a, a daily adventure in how you're going to keep your head on right, you know, and how you're going to keep centered and uh, focused on being positive and being good to the people around you because it makes it really tough. There's nobody not affected. It's one thing I keep trying to warn people. It doesn't matter if your house made it. The people who have come in to help you in any way, shape, or form end up in the end needing help themselves because of how overwhelming it is. You know, so the idea would be whether you use a guidance counselor, a priest, a preacher, a psychologist, psychiatrist, any of them, um, sooner or later they succumb to the overwhelmingness of this all and then they need help. You know, so here you sit in a community and you start to think to yourself, where are the helpers to help the helpers? And, you know, where are those resources? That was Richard Gingery Jr., a business owner and community member living in Megillia. You're listening to After Paradise, a special production from North State Public Radio. When we come back, we'll hear from a professor and author who researches something known as post-traumatic growth. And we'll hear from survivors putting the idea into practice. More just ahead. This is After Paradise, a special program on the aftermath of the campfire from North State Public Radio. I'm Sarah Bohannon. The challenges facing many survivors right now may seem insurmountable. But according to one researcher, where there's pain and suffering, there's often also a tremendous amount of hope. Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn is a professor of nursing at California State University, Sacramento. She's the author of the book, Turning Tragedy into Triumph, and the host of the podcast, Sliver of Hope, Stories of Survival and Growth. I spoke with her about her six-step process called metahabilitation. She says she's seen hundreds go through it, not only bouncing back from a life crisis, but returning fully transformed. I'm not the only one who's talked about post-traumatic growth. In fact, a decade ago, there were researchers, Tadeshi and Calhoun, talked about five domains of post-traumatic growth. They started studying trauma, and what they found as they were going through that is, you know, there's some negative effects, but what's really provocative, what's really interesting is that we also see people whose lives have changed for the better. So they talk about five domains of post-traumatic growth, and they see people, not overnight, but over time, can have a greater appreciation of life. It can improve their relationships with one another. They can identify a greater sense of their own strength, of their personal strength. They tend to develop more spiritually, not necessarily religiously, but more spiritually. And then they can open up themselves to new possibilities. So the research is out there. The research shows that people not only can do this, but they do do it. Most of the time, they just need to have this awareness and be guided toward the, in that direction. When you see people who have done well, and I hear them tell me their story, and I'll say to them, you know in your story how I know you're going to do well, how you know you're going to do fine? And they go, what? And I go, you told me about a purpose. So a lot of times people say, you know, this is a horrible thing to go through, but it really, you know, I started um, working with shelter animals or I started always volunteering for first responders in the middle of a fire. They found a purpose. They're going to do okay. There's a process to this. This is a process. And it doesn't, you know, it takes some time to move through. But I always tell people to have hope and to focus on what you can do. Focus on what you can do. Stop for a little bit and recognize where you were and now where you are. Have you moved forward at all, like mentally, emotionally, physically, or even spiritually? Write that down, journal that, start to look at that. 
And then if you need, this is really important for people going through the acute phase and a little bit after that. I always tell people, people who have done well learned how to ask for and accept help. A lot of times we think, oh no, I can do this. I got this. I can, no, no, no. This is way bigger. These fires for people, way bigger maybe overwhelmed them in terms of their resilience capacity. So ask for and accept help. So if you need to go to a therapist, go to a therapist, but talk to the therapist about the fact that you want to use this experience to move forward and help them help you find that way. So that's important. And number two when you're in some really bad spots, and this is really good brain research that talks about this, focus on three things that you're grateful for and focus on one thing you could do for somebody else. Because our brain has a weird way of integrating gratitude and service. And it gets us out of ourselves. So a lot of times I'll tell people every night, I want you to just think of three things that day you were grateful for and start processing things like that and moving your brain in that direction. And once a day, do something, one thing for somebody else and start focusing on that. And that that is helpful. So if you need extra therapy to get through that, get it. And then practice gratitude and find ways to be of service. That was Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn, a professor of nursing at California State University, Sacramento, the author of the book, Turning Tragedy into Triumph, and the host of the podcast, Sliver of Hope, Stories of Survival and Growth. Finding a purpose is critical to recovery, and it's something many in this community are using to move themselves and others forward. As we near the end of our program, we visit two women who saw a need during the campfire and have since been donating time to meet it. Alyssa Nolan is one of those capeless heroes, a new mother made homeless when 2008's Humboldt Fire swept through some of the same areas as last year's campfire. She turned a long-held aspiration of getting a tiny home for herself into a full-time charitable mission, building tiny homes for fire survivors who've lost just about everything. Her workshop is a vacant gravel lot behind a former Ford dealership in downtown Oroville. There's no electricity available, so Nolan makes her own, filling a generator with gas she buys out of her own pocket. Building materials and just about everything else live inside a couple of storage containers. She said most of the homes under construction are for people still living in their cars. I just called through some of the waiting lists the other day. It took me two days to reach um, just like a fourth of the people, and there was actually more people living in their cars than I thought. Most of the people that are still living in their car are actually families, more than one person. That's just hard to believe. It's, it's crazy, right? And I don't think if people don't deal specifically with um, cleanup or rebuilding or the fire um, survivors, then they probably think that more people are housed than really are. I ask her why these people aren't being housed by FEMA. Nolan says she doesn't have an answer for that. There was such a need and we can't wait for the government to do everything. Pushed nationally as a minimalist, low-cost housing option, the tiny home fad has in some ways gone luxury. This isn't that. Since January, Nolan and other volunteers have built and delivered eight tiny homes, Another four are under construction. Enough money's been donated for further 15. She's under no illusion that the entire effort is little more than a drop in the bucket. There's so many people I find that are in a demographic where they didn't qualify for help at all, even though that sounds crazy. Um, there is a lot of situations that are like that. And then I think with the campfire, there's nothing you can compare that to. Um, a lot of those people are suffering from PTSD or really stressed out even thinking about the paperwork. How can they even do that when they're trying to just survive and worry about you know daily needs like food and water? And even though that sounds crazy because this is America, right? People are in that On a $5,000 per home budget, Nolan must get creative. She relies on an outpouring of generosity from the business community. Heating and air conditioning units are donated and installed by one company, laminate flooring from another, furnishings and appliances from still more. I think that people think 
if they've never been through a fire, they think, you know, six, nine months have passed, a year has passed, people should be settled. For me personally, I didn't even get into a place until uh, seven months after I burnt out. And so I get what people are going through and that the, the majority of fire survivors are not even starting to get to rebuild until about now. Nolan says because of their weight, typical tiny homes require custom frames. That can't be done on a Spartan budget. Instead, she's repurposing dual axle frames from rundown trailers, some downright dilapidated. She warned one that had recently come in, built in 1981, might be off-putting. <laughs> I told you it's bad. So, I mean, just looking at it, you can see why someone wouldn't, you know, this is beyond repair. Um, it has black mold, the ceiling's leaking. So, there, I mean, there's no way, the amount of money you would have to dump in this camp trailer for it to be, you know, habitable for a human again, it, it just would not make sense. It wouldn't be a wise investment. And so for us, you know, with a $40 dump run and some volunteer labor and then everything else, we turn it into something that's beautiful and is a blessing. As an executive assistant at Daxit Recovery Systems, she's able to squeak by on what she earns working nights and weekends to donate about 40 hours a week to the cause. Where did you learn these skills? YouTube. <laughs> I never built, before January, I never built anything before. I always wanted to build a tiny home for myself, so I had done a little research in that. Uh, actually, a lot of the other knowledge I've gained is from volunteers that come out and are knowledgeable. And I'm, you know, everybody learns different. I'm one of those people, if you show me, I could do it. And so um, I have learned, I learn new stuff out here every day. For NSPR News, I'm Mark Albert in Oroville. This last story is one you may actually be a part of. I remember the first time I met Jesse Mercer. It was only a few days after the campfire. We were at the pageant theater in Chico at a meeting where people were figuring out how they could help. I'll never forget when she stood up. She was holding a small bag of keys. She said she lost her art studio in the fire, and she was collecting keys from people who had lost their homes and businesses too. Her plan was to build a sculpture that would eventually be put up as a tribute in her town of Paradise. A year later, she's done just that, She's created a sculpture of a phoenix in flight out of nearly 18,000 keys from campfire survivors. I always tell people, you know, my keys are on here too. I'm just the vessel of creation. We did this together, and I couldn't have ever created this without everyone just participating and trusting. And in my own lane and in my own way, I feel like I broke off all the chains of our keys and I put us back together in the most symbolic way I could. I just remember that we threw a key in a mason jar because that's just kind of a family thing that we throw our, we throw our stuff in a mason jar. And uh, I just thought, wow, I wonder, if, I wonder if other people do this. And I just put a post out on Facebook. I reached out to some community businesses that I had a good relationship with. And I said, I'm going to leave this jar with a little, with a little ribbon on it. <laughs> I'm going to see if people come. And then every week it was just like, your jar's full, your jar's full. And then every day your jar's full. And then every hour, your jar's full. And it got to the point, November through January, where I went from having one key, and I remember that first key, and I was like, I don't care if I build the tiniest bird out of this one key, because someone thought it was great. Someone participated. I made someone happy. And then I went to thousands of keys. And you can even see standing in this room, there are just thousands of keys, and organizing them, cleaning them, putting them together, never drawing it, and then having some beautiful artistic representation, I don't even understand. <laughs> never sketched it. I just, um, I just knew that this is what I needed to do to process. I don't know. I just asked for people to trust me. And with that trust, gave me inspiration. What do you hope the community gets from this when they see it, when it's unveiled? What are you hoping? I hope that... Uh, for people like me that struggle to feel that this, this loosens that stone and it allows you to start healing. I think this project took for me to get this vulnerable with people, but it brings out the vulnerability in everybody else. And it's just been inspiring to see that catch and that empathy wins and love wins, um, even over the darkest destruction. It is amazing for me to see this from the little baggie of keys that you had when I first saw you. I mean, this is amazing. Do you know how many keys there are total? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I'm, I'm upwards of about 17,500-ish. Uh, the, the wings alone, if you look at them, 
have two sides. So one side is just house and regular keys to businesses and safes and such. And then when I flip it over, the other side are all the car keys and the boat keys and things that were transportation. And I thought that was the most appropriate place is to put them on the wings. I just feel like I wrote a story with a whole lot of characters and every one of them was the hero. And there's only one villain, but we're all trying to fight that villain. And that might be my legacy. That might be what I was forged to do after this fire is just to help people come together. And if I can do that with a key or some metal and a lot of gumption, I can't think of a better way to live and to contribute. I think during this interview, anybody that listens can know that I can't fake cry and that if it makes you cry, please do. It's taken me 34 years to learn to cry and I don't want anyone else to have to wait. If you're sad, cry. If you're hurting, cry. It's really relieving. And know that there's just people out there that care about you and even me in my own little weird way with keys and art. Um, this is my lane. This is what I found to help myself. And I just want to encourage everyone to find what that is for you. If it's making dream catchers or if it's welding statues or if it's playing in the sand, I just want you to go and find what makes you feel okay again because it's okay. At a year mark, it's okay to start feeling okay. It's okay. We can't change it, but we can move forward. That was Jesse Mercer, campfire survivor and creator of the Key Phoenix Project. And that's our program for Friday, November 8th, 2019. After Paradise is produced by Mark Albert, Phil Wilkie, and Tess Figland. Adam Raguzia composed our theme music. Our engineer is Matt Fiddler. A special thanks to the team at Capital Public Radio in Sacramento, Adia White at KRCB in Santa Rosa, and Julia Maldonado. Wherever you choose to be today, take care of yourself and know you're not alone. For a full list of mental health resources or to ask us any questions, please visit our website, mynspr.org. Thank you for being with us. I'm Sarah Bohannon, and this is After Paradise from North State Public Radio. Thank you.